This is the sound of turning ideas into software. This is the sound of engineering and passion. Work. Work more. Work harder. Experiment. Build. Break. And build again. Write code. Improve it. Job done. Celebrate. Insurance. Finance. Retail. Defense. Robotics. Energy. Amethyx. Welcome everyone. I'm a Frag, your host for the next 30 minutes or so. And uh, you are on a Data Science at Home podcast that this time is going to be published on um, in streaming on YouTube. Of course, you will find uh, all the links that uh, you need on the official website, datascienceatome.com. The website is also being renewed, refreshed. There is a new look, a new dress. I hope you like it. But more importantly, there are two things that uh, I want to invite you at, which are the first is the Discord channel that we uh, we have this amazing community uh, on the server. And of course, it would be great to see you there. And uh, you can ask all the questions you want, of course, related to artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning and data science and uh, large language models, whatever you think can be improved in the episodes. It's always good to have some uh, some constructive critique about that and the second link also very important is the newsletter so you will find somewhere at the top nav bar of the website uh, the subscribe button that's the link to our official newsletter uh, which we promise we are going to populate with amazing posts and articles um, on a weekly basis and uh very importantly, uh, nobody will ever, ever abuse your email address. I personally hate that stuff. So uh, feel free to send us your email by uh, you know, subscribing and uh, sleep well at night because nobody's going to abuse your email address anytime. With this said, um, of course, I think it's time to start the episode and uh, speak about artificial intelligence. <laughs> As always, now, um, there is a thing that in particular I would like to speak, which is, of course, related to the world, to the amazing world of large language models, which are uh, monopolizing the news these days. And uh, it's pretty obvious, pretty normal, because there is a lot of utility that they are adding to our life or our workflows. Um, for some people, they are, in fact, very important tools that are helping during their, uh, uh, you know, their proficiency and their uh, efficiency at work. For some others, it's just a tool for, you know, having fun. For some others, um, are just, you know, useless tools. <laughs> so there are many opinions there. But um, what I want to do in this episode is, in fact, kind of analyzing a bit of situation, like what's going on and what should we expect in the near future and in the you know next few years um, of course i cannot i don't have a crystal ball i try to analyze a bit what's going on and uh, uh, evaluating some of the analogies that i've seen uh, in the space um, especially when it comes to data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence i remember that a few years ago these three words or terms kind of buzzwords in fact they were used kind of interchangeably, like uh, data science, machine learning, and AI. 
people seem to refer, many people seem to refer to the same thing, right? Uh, while a technical person would tell you, no, data science is this, machine learning is that, and AI is neither of the two. <laughs> so now we have this new kind of analogy, which is many people out there are confusing or using or abusing the, the term LLM with AI. And they kind of use it interchangeably, which is very wrong, of course, because you know, we have to give a lot of respect to the AI people, to the real AI people. Uh, AI is a superset of large language models. And large language models is just one of the many aspects that AI can, you know, express itself and uh, in a particular sector, how, you know, it's just one particular piece of the of the big puzzle of, of that is AI, right? So, this is a clarification that I, I needed to do um, because I've seen this coming back from the past, okay? This misunderstanding of terminology. I know that sometimes terms are, you know, a bit, you know, the jargon is a bit uh, cryptic and, uh, you know, many people try to simplify. So that's normal, but it's always good to point out what do we mean by LLM and what do we mean by AI. So with this said, um, let me uh, kind of express a, it's not a concern, it's an observation. And again, this is probably, yeah, there are many people out there saying probably the same thing, but these are all personal opinion, uh, opinions about what's going on. I think that this is the right moment for kind of a redemption of the open source movement. And uh, when I say this redemption is because I believe that the open source movement movement didn't have the attention it really deserved in the last decade or more. And we have seen this many times. I don't want to generalize nor making names. You know, there have been a lot of small and large organizations, company corporations even, using and abusing open source projects without giving credit, without giving credit to the authors, for example, without rewarding the authors, except in the last few years, thanks to the Microsoft initiative of sponsorship and uh, sponsoring open source authors on GitHub, for example. I believe that's an amazing initiative. We should have had that like long time ago. Um, it's still not, you know, that much, inf how can I say, important or authors can really appreciate that because they still need, at least the people in my network, they told me many times, they still need to keep their nine to five job and, and then, you know, maintain that sponsored, hopefully sponsored open source project, uh, you know, as a part-time job or even an extra time that they take from their family and, 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 and friends to dedicate to open source, to the open source community. So that's amazing. These people are my heroes. And they are the heroes also of many of the people out there who make a lot of money um, on the work of these, of these folks. So why I think that open source movement didn't have the attention it deserved? Well, for this particular reason, uh, which is more a monetary reason, and, you know, you just must or need to give the credits to the people who deserve it, especially when you build a business on top of their work. But with this said, 
I think that this is the right time for open source movement to come back. And that's why the redemption, in my uh, opinion, redemption of the open source movement. It's because LLM is going to be open source. And that's kind of my, again, personal opinion, how things are going. I analyze, uh, you know, a, a, a small analysis, kind of shallow analysis of what's going on around us makes me believe that things are steering or will steer more and more towards the open source community and the open source movement for several reasons. One in particular is that, um, you know, when it comes to large language models, for example, and that's going to be the main example of the episode, of course, but open source communities are building, have built already and are building and improving amazing tools, uh, very flexible tools and more and more powerful tools that big companies are not only using, but they cannot build. Or, well, they're not building because it costs money to build these things. And the community effort is something that in this particular case and scenario, it's quite unbeatable. Even if you have an infinite amount of money, you don't have, or you might be lacking the creativity to think about that particular tool or enhance or increase the flexibility of that existing tool. And that's what open source is doing. We have seen, for example, Rust coming out of the scene in AI as well. And there are crates that are really impressive. For example, Candle. Um, I made a podcast recently, so feel free to scrape the web or go on the official website, datasciencesatom.com, to get that episode. I think it's a a very interesting one, especially if you want to get familiar with Rust and at the same time, you know, play a bit with large language models and combine the two. Um, Rust has recently been defined as the uh, programming language of AI, the programming language of the future. Some people are saying it's the programming language of the next 50 years, <laughs> which which are not an exaggeration if you look at how, you know, some of the properties, features, and characteristics of Rust, you will understand what I mean. With this said, back to the open source community effort, it's incredible. It's something that the big corporations are not and cannot match. They are just users. They're just utilizing this effort for their own businesses. The other thing is that the LLM technology you know, at its core is democratic. And what I mean by democratic is that, well, we have hardware requirements that are becoming more and more approachable, um, especially for the small players. Um, it started, of course, with these massive models. I'll just spend a few words later. This massive model started from 180, 150, almost 200 billion parameters and now we are kind of shrinking down these this massive numbers to a couple of uh, a, a dozen billion parameters which is still an incredible amount of parameters especially if we compare these you know neural networks to the ones that we were running like four or five years ago uh, having a, a neural network of 10 million parameter was like whoa that's like uh, that's something and now having a 7 billion parameter is like, uh, eh, it's like the bare minimum. Um, so 
but still shrinking from 180 150 billion parameters to seven and maintaining most of the performance qualitatively measured of course uh, because these are language models uh, maintaining that performance and crashing down the number of, uh, of parameters that you are actually computing and, and, and storing in memory is also impressive. And this democratization, this contributes to the democratization of large language models because you need less memory and less hardware, less GPUs. So this means that you, that small with that small organization, you can afford it. It's still a budget, but you can afford it. It's not something prohibitive, as prohibitive as it was a few months ago. So that's also another important thing to, to, to know. The third reason for which I believe that, you know, this is all, you know, this is doomed to be an open source uh, thing is that majority of the improvements that you can think of when it comes to large language models, they usually come from a deep understanding of the domain, of the sectors you are operating. And understanding the domain you operate tells or has nothing to do with the size of your organization, right? Really, size doesn't matter there. It's just that you have expert knowledge that you have acquired because you hired the right people or because you have some information or because you have been in the space for long enough so in that particular sector you have deep knowledge deep understanding of how your sector works and this is a fundamental property or an essential requirement for the success of um, a large language model in that context um, and again since this has nothing to do with the size of your organization it means that it really doesn't matter if you are small or large or medium-sized. doesn't matter. You have a deep understanding of that sector. You're still in the race, and you might win. Um, and the last thing is that, um, well, I think I, I covered that, is less hardware. So um, we covered also that particular aspect, for example, model quantization, many Many more people are experimenting, especially practitioners, um, researchers, of course, but I've seen in the community even more and more practitioners, you know, people without special academic background, still trying to tweak and tune these models and quantize them and see what happens to the, you know, to the properties of the model, to the qualitative properties of the model in terms of performance. And in this case, you know, squeezing a model and measuring how it performs is not as it was in the in the past. Like you had a, a mean squared error or one of these metrics that you can you know numerically assess. Something is greater than that, and therefore that is bad. A is better than B. It's not like that anymore. So for a large language model, you have qualitative measures. Think about the fact that when you retrain a model or when you quantize a model. Uh, the last validation is a human being who's going to try out the model and start chatting in different uh, domains with different inputs, with different prompts. And I'll speak about prompts in a minute um, and see how it goes. Right. And, and, and say, oh, this, no, this is like hallucinating now or, or this one hallucinated way earlier than, than this new version of the model. So this is the kind of analysis and assessment that you 
uh, that you make, which is called qualitative assessment. Um, so these are the, the things that are happening. If you ask me, okay, what's going to happen in the future? I don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. Nobody does, in fact. Um, but these are the good ingredients, the good requirements for me to believe that this is meant to be an open source uh, community effort. So I strongly believe that we'll, we are going to see some amazing improvements from the open source world, um, from the open source communities when it comes to large language models and uh, that type of artificial intelligence. So with this said, of course, we are all seeing that large language models are becoming some kind of community-centric technology, and that's very important. Another thing is data. So majority of the data that a large language model needs to, to be trained is publicly available online, right? And they usually need this high-quality and massive training corpus or corpora, if you want to stay with Latin. <laughs> but essentially, majority of these, except for the ones that have already closed the APIs um, or kind of have their APIs, you know, controlled in, a, in order to avoid this massive uh, scraping of their data sources, which is understandable, especially when they don't get, they don't get the reward or they don't get paid for it. Um, but the rest of the uh, inter uh, data on the internet is on the internet. And so, uh, again, there is a strong uh, democratization process there that allows Peter, Paul, and Frank to connect to the internet and start scraping the web and use this data. Now, is it ethical? That's a different story. I don't want to, um, you know, dedicate uh, this episode to how ethical that um, scraping the data, scraping public data is. This is not the right moment for speaking about that. And uh, whose copyright is, for example, the, the, the output of these generative models when you generate art or images or videos or text, um, well, if uh, training that model meant uh, reading a million books um, and not rewarding the authors of these books or reading uh, 10 million images to generate art and not rewarding the artists who made these images, you know, this is a, an ethical issue. But from a technical perspective, until someone stopped this, uh, it's totally possible and uh, accessible to pretty much anyone. In that sense, it's the democratic, how democratic the process is. I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's fair. I'm not saying it's ethical. I'm saying it's democratic. And again, I want to stress that this is democratic, not in political terms, but in the accessibility of the process. Um, so the combination of these things, like uh, availability of data, computational resources that are no longer, you know, required in large amounts as it was a few months ago, performance of the models that are comparable even when we compress them, when we squeeze them, and so we need less RAM, less GPU, less storage, less, less, less. Uh, these are all good requirements. These are all good signs for the large language model um, 
field to be indeed accessible by many. Um, so this is going to happen. There's going to be, in my opinion, it's already happening. I already see that, but it's going to be steering towards the open source community much more uh, steadily in the near future. Another thing that we're going to see is definitely, okay, some people like, some people don't, uh, this prompt engineering thing. So um, what is prompt engineering is <laughs> something that people have defined in many ways. I, I, I read many definitions of prompt engineering. It depends how fancy you want to you wanna sound when you say it. Um, if you say, oh, I'm, I'm a senior prompt engineer, <laughs> it's like, uh, okay, you're trying to convince me that you have actually a resume and you are someone. Um, so some other people, it's like they're taking advantage of this new term. To my understanding and in my, again, personal opinion, is kind of the lame version of reverse engineering. Um, and, I, and I say that because it is indeed some kind of, uh, you know, you're tweaking and tuning the input of a model until the model gets an output gets the output that you really want right uh, that's basically what you do with prompt engineering so you try the first time the model hallucinates you try another time you try modifying a bit the, the input and the model starts responding then you tweak and tune again and the model responds exactly how you want so that's kind of reverse engineering the model which is a black box because you don't look in the model you don't know what the model looks like how the model looks like and so you just you know, by trial and error, you, you you try to probe the model and see what it what it gets, and then you you keep changing the probing part of the, which is the prompt, and you see how the model behaves. Right, that that's what prompt engineering is. Now, if we did this some years ago with uh, off-the-shelf machine learning models like uh, uh, logistic regression or I don't know random forest, imagine you had uh, the input <clears throat> that you were tweaking and tuning, like prompt engineering of the input to get some output, to get that probability with logistic regression or to get that particular class with uh, random force. So you had like, you could measure, for example, all the classes of your decision trees. And by tweaking and tuning some of the features in the input, you would get a different class every time. And until you got to the right class and then you forged the input by looking at the output, right? So basically applying prompt engineering or a form of prompt engineering to off-the-shelf machine learning models. They would have called us, what, crazy or cheaters? Like, that's kind of cheating. <laughs> uh, so as you can see, you know, if an old-school person would look at prompt engineering in a skeptical way, and I totally get it. Um, but I think that's something that we cannot avoid. So... Fortunately or unfortunately, I don't care, but <clears throat> this is something that we will see. It will stay. Uh, in the near future, prompt engineering is going gonna, is gonna to be probably the only possible way to operate these this large, language, uh, large language models, at least this generation of large language models. Um, this is kind of what I, what I believe. Now, is there a way to... Um, understand, for example, what's going on in the startup world, uh, you know, all these AI startups that come out and came out in the last year, year and a half. Well, I think that majority of these startups, AI startups, are doomed to fail. 
And I don't say that because I'm jealous or or, or whatever. Like it's 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 just that okay, the rate, the successful rate of um, success rate of a startup in general is already very low globally, all over the world. But I believe that in the AI world, this is going to be even higher, even higher rate uh, of of failure. Because I, I think I said, uh, uh, well, you get you 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 know what I what I said <laughs> probably. I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase this. The success rate of startup, generally speaking, is very low. And uh, AI startups is gonna be extremely low, way lower than normal startups. And why is that? Is because what I'm seeing, many of these startups are actually, you know, building an API call on top of a uh, of a UI. So they have their own UI, usually pretty nice, pretty good looking. And you use that UI and what you're doing essentially is behind the scenes calling an API, usually OpenAI API. And then, you know, they reprocess the output and they serve the output in a nice UI that is proprietary of the startup. And there you go, boom, product already already made. Now, how defensible is this? Very little, if not zero. So you have zero defensibility when you build a company around these two things, a nice UI and and an API. And why is that? Is because, well, first of all, it's extremely risky in the sense that tomorrow OpenAI shuts down whatever they fired their CEO in a weekend. I expect that this company is going to run into troubled waters anyway. They limit the API, they they um, temporarily disable it. God knows what happens, you know. You are building your core business 100% dependent on that API. And that, that API is kind of the single point of failure of your entire business. So when I see um, venture capitalists and investors putting their money in this, uh, in the new .ai startup, and when I look at what they do, what they build, and, and when I realize it's just an API call to OpenAI, you know, I, I smile. Um, and I think of how risky would it be to put the money in, uh, in that particular investment. So um, I've seen dozens of these, uh, of these um, businesses, and probably there are thousands already. And that's, uh, yeah, I'm quite confident that they are going to fail very soon. Now, there is, there are two things that can happen. The first is that you build something over a week, a month, you know, because at the end of the day, you just have to design your UI and connect to the, uh, to the OpenAI API, right? Okay, having the idea is cool. It takes time. Sometimes it's like an intuition that you have. That's the creative aspect of uh, of the entire process. We don't control that. That happens or you get influenced or there's a, a business need, whatever. I'm speaking about the engineering part. The engineering part is something that you can replicate relatively easily because if you build that thing in one month, someone else or anybody else can come and replicate that in a couple of weeks, if not earlier 
So that's kind of, you know, it means that you have no defensible position on, on your own product. And the second thing that can happen is even worse, that if nobody came because, you know, you are the only one in the space, it's temporary because as soon as they smell there is good business and there is a profitable business, they will come and replicate you overnight. So, uh, and you have nothing to, you know, against that replication. That's the problem. You, are, you don't have like the secret sauce that um, makes you unique or makes your business unique. You are using open source tools. Best case scenario, you are using an, a, an API that everybody else can use for 20 bucks per month. And so, you know, you're not as different as unique. And the second thing is that, um, well, they can replicate you. So you're not unique. They can replicate and there's nothing that you can do against that replication. So you might ask, okay, then how can I defend? How can I be defense? How can I have a defensible business? Well, it depends. Sometimes you can't and uh, very few times you can. And the only way that I personally see as the only defensible mechanism that you can have or a company can have in this moment, in this sector, so in LLM space, AI space, is data. And that's why I never changed. I, you know, I was about to change the name to this podcast, Data Science, I was calling something else. And, uh, and then I decided not to because I said, but data and science are still the two things that, you know, are the, the two most important ingredients of whatever we are, we are seeing today. You can call it LLM, you can call it AI, it doesn't matter. You need data and you need science. That's why data science is still alive. <laughs> and, uh, and it will be because data is the only ingredient that keeps you in a defensible position. Imagine this, you are an healthcare company or a pharma pharmaceutical company, okay? I, I operate in the space of pharmaceuticals. And I know, as many other people in the world, of course, that pharmaceutical companies have these amazing databases with um, um, very special data. Depends on which sector they operate. But usually they have like chemoinformatics data. They have a protein folding data. They have healthcare data, they have medical claims. This is all the data that you cannot scrape from the web, from the you know, from the internet. There's no way that you can say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my scraper, my spider, and go around and scrape this data, and and next month we're gonna start training our new model. It's not gonna happen because this data is not accessible. It is extremely slow to collect, it's extremely expensive to collect, and usually the players who have this data are the players who have been building up these databases in decades. And so these players are the only one who can access this gold mine. Also, don't forget that Google, for example, Google, Meta, Facebook, in fact, uh, back in the days, they all played the same game. They give you tools for free, they don't give you the data. Google gives you Google Gmail or YouTube or whatever other Google service for free. They don't give you the Google access to the Google database directly. Eventually, they give you access to the Google database via 
Google services. So they give you the tools for free that are the only tools that you can use to access Google data and not in a raw format. You will access a particular aspect or a particular view of this data, right? And that's why they gave TensorFlow for free. With TensorFlow, you can build all the models you want, but the data are not for free. In fact, the data are not even for sale. Think about that. So the same is for large language models. They are built on, majority of them are built on PyTorch or Torch. If you want to be more performant, you're going to use Torch and your C++ library and you're good to go. Torch is open source. The um, prompt engineering, the uh, transformer uh, uh, architecture, these are all things that we have papers, we know very well how these things work. We have entire code bases that implement these things in the most efficient possible way. We have uh, CUDA, NVIDIA uh, optimizations for pretty much all the uh, neural network architectures that you are using today. From computer vision to large language models to NLP, no matter what, you have it. The only missing piece of that puzzle is the data. And so that's what I think is going to be, you know, as always, and indeed this is an analogy that I've seen and we should all be seeing from the past. This happened already with data science and uh, this is happening with the large language models and this will always happen because as long as data is the substrate on top of which you build all the intelligence that you want, whoever owns this data rules. Now, when it comes to large language models, it depends on which sector you are operating. There are many language, large language models and many sectors that, for which, for example, open data are um, you know, essential and uh, sufficient. So scraping Reddit and Wikipedia is enough because probably you are building a customer service, an automated customer service support, whatever, or something that deals in a generic domain, let's say in a, a non-specialized domain, entertainment, for example. Uh, in that case, you are good with open data. In many other cases, that's not enough. And that's where you have the advantages position as a player. And it doesn't really mean that you are the biggest organization in the world. There are many small organizations with uh, very special data. And also that is a, a form of democratization. Uh, you know, they always said that with blogging and, you know, bl posting blogs and stuff and writing articles, content is key. It doesn't matter the tools that you have. When people were struggling, like, hey, should I use WordPress or this other thing or that other thing or Go, uh, what is Ghost or uh, Tumblr or whatever? And the people said, man, we don't care. Like, as, as long as the content is good, you can publish it wherever. And at any time of the day or any time of the week, we don't care. So content is king. Content was king. Not anymore, unfortunately. Much of it is uh, generated. Data is king. That's for sure. Well, 
I hope you enjoyed uh, the show and I hope you enjoyed the, uh, some of the personal opinions that I had regarding the uh, world of LLMs and, of course, the open source movement. Uh, again, if you have um, critiques or if you want to share your opinions, uh, feel free to use the Discord channel. You will find the link uh, in the official website, datascienceathome.com. And also don't forget the newsletter. Again, it's free of charge. Nobody's ever going to abuse the email address. I've had that. I keep stressing people on that. Uh, don't get scared. Subscribe and uh, spread the word with your friends and your network. I would highly appreciate that. Thank you so much.